The scripture this morning is Matthew three thirteen through 17, and I'm sorry I forgot to look at the page numbers in the Pew Bibles. Sorry. But Matthew's, 20, oh, page 3 in the New Testament. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee. Comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so. For it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Pat. I want to especially focus on the part of our passage this morning as Jesus comes to John uh, to be baptized, and John protests. Uh, As I said with the children, how would you feel if the Son of God, if Jesus came into the church this morning and said, Pastor Bob, would would you baptize me? Certainly, I wouldn't feel worthy to do that. That would seem a reversal of roles, and that's what happens with John. And yet, Jesus says something which sometimes I think we... We don't fully appreciate the impact of his statement. He says, no, let's do this so that all righteousness is fulfilled. Jesus was consumed with the righteousness of God. Being holy as God is holy. Looking to God as he went off and prayed frequently for wisdom for the day ahead, the decisions to be made. Uh, that idea of being obedient to God, a holy obedience, uh, is I think sometimes lost in today's church. We rightly appreciate the grace of God. And that's very often emphasized to the exclusion of remembering that we are called to be a holy people. Our baptismal vows call us to be a people who resist evil. And yet in today's world, it seems that that sometimes that call to holy obedience is minimized as if, well, that's one thing for Jesus, the Son of God, who had to be perfect. But as for me, uh, certainly I can use grace as an excuse to sin and grace as an excuse uh, for my mistakes. When I was growing up, and many of you, I've, I've shared with you about my dad. He was a World War II Marine and and uh, in our household, discipline and loyalty. We had a family business and loyalty to that business, which meant uh, essentially slavery for us children. Uh, it, it was essential. And, uh, uh, but also discipline. My dad was such a disciplined person. I don't know a time that he didn't get the job done in the time frame that it had to be done. If it meant staying up 48 straight hours, he was going to do that. He never slept in. He, uh, he never uh, forgot to shine his shoes in the evening. Uh, he had a disciplined life. And he expected that from us. Uh, I believe those same values of loyalty and discipline and obedience transfer over uh, into our Christian life. I have always uh, gone back to, to my dad's example and seen how, see how they meet the expectations of God in our lives. Uh, We should be loyal, standing by our faith, ready and equipped to defend it. We have a loyalty to the United Methodist Church, but above that loyalty is a loyalty to God. 
our first loyalty, the first commandment is to love God with all our heart. That entails loyalty, that we will stand by our God and we will stand by his ways and his teachings. The odd thing about my dad was that he was a sensitive and thoughtful man who would carry a cricket all the way up the stairs out of our basement and set it outside rather than stepping on it. Uh, that always, to me, was an interesting quality that he had, something that didn't quite line up with the, with the rest of the uh, man that I saw. He was strong and he was courageous. As a teenager, he survived some of the bloodiest battles in the Pacific, uh, Tarawa and Guadalcanal and others. And as a child, he exerted discipline on me, occasionally whipping me. And uh, today that sounds terrible. I think to this generation's years, oh, 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 uh, can we still report him for child abuse, uh, you know? Uh, but, you know, I, what I remember about those times, I remember, you know, the whole thing, putting your hand back to try to, you know, protect your backside, forgetting that your hand is more sensitive than the backside. But there was always that instinctive thing to protect yourself. My dad didn't whip me long. I mean, it was one, two, or three, depending upon how serious the infraction was. And he always afterwards said the classic lines that many parents say, you do know that hurt me more than it hurt you, which I never quite understood that. But then he would talk to me about what I had done. He would tell, talk to me about why that was wrong. And at the end of the whole thing, I knew my dad loved me. And I look at the way God loves us. In Hebrews, uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful passage here that says, uh, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. In other words, this sort of discipline, this chastening, is a sign that you are a child of God. Whereas in today's world, we say being blessed, receiving more and more and more stuff is a sign of being a child of God. And yet Hebrews says quite the opposite. It is, it is in the hardship and in the disciplining that we know that we are children, sons and daughters of God. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They, they our, our human fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Note that. That's very important. God disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness, in holy living, doing what is right. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. In other words, discipline is for the purpose of living a life of righteousness and peace and holiness. 
I don't think we always get that idea. I think, uh, I, I don't know the last time I, I heard a sermon or based or had a Bible study based on obedience. And yet this week as I go through, I, I see how essential everything in scripture is uh, in terms of our relationship with God to our obedience to God. The original sin was a disobedience to God. A taking things in for ourselves, wanting to be like God, wanting to be equal with God. And so, as we come to the baptism of Jesus, it is significant that Jesus himself does not that use that as an opportunity for self-glorification, but instead allows the act to be his Father's. He will fulfill all righteousness as determined by his Father. And so his Father uh, proclaims uh, at his baptism as a dove, uh, the Spirit as a dove comes down upon him and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased Hear him. This is my beloved son. And that love of God for his son in that act of baptism was based upon the obedience that he saw there in his son. That his son had indeed fulfilled that first responsibility. Through our own baptisms... God has called us to that same righteousness in our lives. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us this, Have this very same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. And then notice this, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. By becoming obedient. Once again, obedience is the key here. You know, Jesus wasn't trying to get by easy in life. It wasn't long after uh, his baptism that he goes into the wilderness where he is tempted, as I mentioned with the children. Uh, Those temptations... Uh, where temptations, as I go through each of those temptations, would have been extremely hard for me to resist. Ironically, it wasn't so much that that uh, the devil was going to give me the whole world and, and, and all the riches of the world. Uh, that I can do without. It was the stone into bread at that moment of physical hunger that would have been the greatest one uh, to resist. Why? Because it seems so minor. It's one of those things in our daily lives that we go ahead and do it even though we know it might be wrong. However, no one will notice and no one would even blame us for doing it because it fulfilled a need that we had. Our bodies wanted it. But it was a way of saying that God's will even goes beyond our our human uh, fleshly desires and that Jesus was willing to give up everything uh, for God and uh, to be obedient to God. I'm not sure one of the things I think that is, is our biggest challenge today is identifying what is evil, what is unjust, what is oppressive. In our baptismal vows, we, we are going to resist the powers of evil and uh, injustice and oppression. But how do we identify those things? Within churches, we... We grapple with that. We, we argue about it. What does it mean to resist evil? What does it mean to be just? You know, some uh, years ago, I can't even remember how many years ago this was, but it was sometimes in, in the early 2000s. 
I was driving with my family down from New York back to our home in Portsmouth, Virginia, and we were taking the eastern seaboard route uh, down from New York City because we could take the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and go across to our home. And my brother was with us, and he was sitting in the front seat next to me in the passenger seat. And as we got into Delaware, I got to a point uh, just before we were about to go into Maryland where I took a wrong turn and I needed to make a U-turn. And I came up to a spot and there was a sign that said, no left turn. And in my mind, I began to grapple with what I was about to do. It's not a left turn I'm making, it's a U-turn I'm making. And deep down I knew that that involved a leftward movement but I was able to justify the U-turn in my mind. And so I, I, I make that U-turn, and a Delaware state trooper sees it, and he pulls me over. And we have a discussion, a really interesting discussion. I said, but I, it said no left turn. I didn't make a left turn. I made a U-turn. He said, well, you had to make a left to make the U-turn. And I said, but I thought that the purpose of the no left was because there was a fire station right there, and if you made a left turn, you would pull right up into the fire station and block the fire trucks. So I didn't think that that also involved not making a U-turn. Also, because then he said, he said to me, he said, he said, you have to turn left to make a U-turn. And I very smart aleckly said, except in Britain. You know. And then... I went on to continue, I, uh, my, and he gave up. <laughs> he said, have a good day, drive safely, and he left, and that was it. Now, that doesn't happen very often for me, that I can talk someone out of something, or he may have just been afraid that he was going to end up in court with me and, uh, and go through all this. So I was feeling pretty good about it, and I'm triumphal, and as we're going down the road, we're having this conversation, my brother and me, about how, how, how great that was, that I argued my way out of the ticket and so forth, and we crossed over the Maryland line. And I don't know if it's still the same, but it used to be Maryland was infamous for their state troopers pulling people over. We cross over the Maryland line, and I hadn't noticed as I was talking, I was almost 20 miles over the speed limit. So I get pulled over again. And this time, I started talking about Einstein's theory of relativity, about how as velocity increases, time will reduce, and to the point when you get to the speed of light, it will actually be zero. There will be no time, no, no feeling of time relative to your movements or anything. And he's, yeah, I didn't say that, but I did argue with him a little bit about it, and I said, I'm so sorry, I was upset because I got pulled over up in Delaware, <laughs> which just made him think I was a hardened criminal. I got the ticket. So my brother's sitting there, and I know he was feeling pretty good about all this. That, you know, I had gotten my comeuppance. And we're going on down. Now we're heading towards Virginia. And he says, why don't you try for the trifecta? <laughs> which, which didn't happen. Did not happen. But here's the thing. It's not always easy to determine what's right and wrong. What is the will of God? But we know this, that in our Bibles, we can go and find the wisdom of God. In our Bibles, when we pray as we study, when we allow the Spirit 
to lead us and inform us. We can know the perfect will of God. When we look to Jesus Christ and turn our eyes upon Him, we can know the perfect will of God. Because Jesus Christ Himself fulfilled every every requirement of the law. Jesus Christ Himself was the living Word. And so our lives should be based and founded and revolving around this Jesus who can tell us when or not we should make that left turn. (laughs) When or not we should act in a way that to us may seem right, but according to God's Word, is wrong. This morning, uh, we're going to talk, uh, given a few minutes, uh, and I'm going to first read something to you, uh, just a statement about what has happened. And I think this is a good time for us to talk about obedience. Uh, There has for a long time been Uh, I think a lot of confusion in the church, uh, in many churches, about where do we get our our marching orders from? Where where are we informed about what it means to lead a Christian life? You know, Pew Research uh, recently did, and United Methodist Communications did a similar study within the United Methodist Church specifically, and one of the questions they asked was, where, do you, where are you informed by what is right and wrong? What is your source for determining what is right and wrong? And it was amazing. They broke it down in conservatives, moderates, liberals. It was amazing that you could say, oh, look at this. The conservatives more often answered the Bible than the liberals did. But what was shocking to me was the number of conservatives who didn't answer the Bible, but instead said, personal experience, my own reason. You know, we have this thing, you may have heard of it, the Wesleyan quadrilateral that says reason and experience and tradition and scripture, but that everything, reason and tradition and experience, all um, have to be submitted into the scriptures. The scriptures are the final authority over all of those things doesn't mean that we aren't, don't use reason, experience, and tradition, but that the Word of God trumps everything else. But here were United Methodists, many of whom may have heard about that quadrilateral and preaching at some point, but who are saying, well, my primary way of making a decision about what is right or wrong is my own reason or my experience in the past. You know... That was stunning to me to see. It's stunning how many don't read their Bible. How many, even on a monthly basis, don't read the Scriptures. How many come to church once a month, once a year. And I believe that is why we are in the trouble that we're in. Why we can't be united because we're all coming at this faith from a very different way and and, and depending upon different resources and not having a common uh, word that we trust in to guide us. And so I'm going to to read uh, uh, some thoughts on the protocol of grace and I will admit that um, my thoughts are sometimes a little bit more inflammatory than they need to be. I, I, I get a little carried away and I have to go back and then I start editing through my thoughts and then I said, well, now I'm the preacher who isn't going to say what's really on his heart. Uh, if you read my column in the newsletter, 
that was a little bit more to the inflammatory uh, side. And, uh, but uh, because I thought, you know, I'm just going to share with you where, where I am at this point in terms of what's in my heart on what's going on. But still with faith in what God is doing and what He will do in the future. So I'm going to read this statement, which was actually, much of it was written by another pastor down in Texas. I came across it, and I thought, well, this is very reasonable. This is what I should be. I should be reasonable. And this is informational and reasonable for you. So it's thoughts on the protocol of grace through separation proposal, which, by the way, uh, we have sheets of information that you can pick up this morning on this protocol uh, this came out in the news, I believe, uh, last Friday, so it's been about uh, nine days since it, since it hit the news media. Uh, it was interesting that it hit the news media. I didn't expect for anything big to, be, uh, to come out of that, but uh, uh, as I looked around, I found out that there were people in our church who were confused as to what it meant. There were people in other churches uh, all over the country this morning, pastors are standing up and doing just what I'm doing right now to try to bring some sense to, to this. So, uh, dear church family, in case you didn't notice, the United Methodist Church was in the news recently. It all started last Friday morning when the Council of Bishops website announced a proposal that outlines the separation of the United Methodist Church into two or more Methodist denominations. Now, because it came through the office of bishops, that led it a great deal of credibility. And also was why many of the headlines say, United Methodist leaders decide to split. The assumption of the news media was that the bishops had made the decision. We all know that it is the general conference that will be in May that votes on anything such as this protocol. United Methodist News Service first reported the story. It was quickly picked up by multiple United Methodist, uh, by multiple media outlets throughout the day, including Christianity Today, Magazine, The Washington Post, Fox News, The New York Times, The Houston Chronicle, uh, CNN. I mean, everywhere you looked, it was there, you know, as one of the lead, lead stories. If you read the headlines, you would think that the United Methodist Church has already agreed to split, and you would be wrong. The United Methodist Church has actually not agreed to split. Sixteen people agreed on a plan that they would submit for the church to divide. Any decision regarding a possible separation of the UMC will be made solely by the 862 delegates to the General Conference when it convenes May 5th through 15, 2020. At the same time, the question of separation will be a significant topic of discussion at that meeting. So what is significant about this proposal and why all the media attention? The difference between this and other proposals, and we have a sheet here that gives you information on the other four proposals that have often also been submitted but didn't receive the news media attention. The difference between this proposal and those other four is that this had the endorsement of key bishops, including the current president and the president-elect of the Council of Bishops. All the major advocacy groups in the church were represented in the negotiations, including the Wesleyan Covenant Association, Good News, the Confessing Movement, all of which would be considered traditional or conservative. UM Next, uh, 
now all these next ones are liberal or progressive. UM Next, Mainstream Methodist, the United Methodist, Methodist Queer Clergy Caucus, Methodist Federation for Social Action, and the Reconciling Ministry Network. The agreed protocol was the result of months of intense negotiations between these widely different groups and was aided by Kenneth Feinberg, a renowned attorney and mediator. If you're familiar at all with the United Methodist Church, you know the name Adam Hamilton. If you're familiar with the church here in Virginia, you'd know of Tom Berlin. If you're familiar uh, with uh, the Wesleyan Covenant Association, you know Keith Boyette from Virginia. All of these people, Adam Hamilton has the largest United Methodist Church in the nation. All of these people were part of this. So there was a lot of credibility, a lot, and, and all, all of the 16 major contributors to this all came to a, an agreement that they would support it, even though they represented very diverse parts of the denomination. The person who came in and mediated this was Kenneth Feinberg, uh, who, uh, if there has been a mediate, mediator needed for something uh, after Sandy Hook, the shootings there for the victims' families, uh, after 911, uh, victims' families, and so forth, this Feinberg was the one who mediated those and many others. Uh, he is Jewish, <laughs> so he had no uh, no uh, side that he came to this on, uh, and he offered to do this for free for the denomination because of his his concern for what was uh, going on and what had happened in the past. Essentially, the proposal outlines a protocol for restructuring the current United Methodist Church through separation into at least two denominations, a traditional Methodist church uh, that would keep the current teaching and practices as they are today, and a post-separation United Methodist Church that would liberalize the teaching and practices regarding marriage and sexuality. The proposal allows for annual conferences to align with the new traditional Methodist Church or remain in a restructured UMC, which means that the Virginia Conference, which will meet in June, will, can vote on whether or not to separate or to remain in the United Methodist Church as a conference. If you are a local church within the, within the Virginia Conference and you don't agree with the conference's decision, you can then Decide for your own whether or not you will remain in the UMC, which will be the more liberal progressive uh, denomination, or move into the new traditionalist uh, U, uh, Methodist church. Talk of possible division has been growing over the past decade because of significant differences regarding the role, authority, and interpretation of Scripture in the life of the church and specifically what it teaches about marriage and sexual ethics for Christians. The names progressive and traditional are commonly used to describe these two views of Scripture and is reflected of much larger doctrinal disagreements far beyond the current debate surrounding marriage and sexual ethics. In other words, we keep talking about the, the disagreements as if it was only about human sexuality, but it's, it's much larger uh, disagreements. Uh, some of which include uh, orthodox beliefs about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, about the, uh, uh, the uniqueness of the gospel in the world, Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life versus many other ways to come 
to God and so forth. All of these have been issues that have, have come up. The sad fact we should all acknowledge is that as a denomination, we are deeply divided, irreconcilably, irreconcilably divided. We may wish it were different, but it isn't. The theological division in the UMC has grown sharper in recent years, especially after the special called session of General Conference just 11 months ago. A growing number of leaders from across the theological spectrum believe our continued debate is not only harming our witness, but damaging the church and keeping us from our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Many of these leaders have come to believe that some form of separation is regrettably necessary for us to move beyond these destructive debates. I'm going to just move past some of these um, and try to summarize for you. Essentially what this comes down to, and this is where we'll talk with more specificity in the, after the service today with anyone who wants to remain for that. Uh, essentially what this means for us here uh, at Verona UMC is that there's the very real possibility that in the coming months after the, the conference in May that uh, our, our church council will uh, decide that we need to vote, to have a vote. The church council will decide whether or not it's a simple majority, of, of, uh, which means a 51% versus 49 or two-thirds uh, majority would be required. All those specific things need to be decided by our church council. The uh, district superintendent would be notified of the vote, and we would have 60 days after that notification to have the vote. We have up to uh, a certain number of years, and Mike, help me with that. Right, yeah. We have uh, essentially four years to make that decision. Uh, If you don't make that decision within the four years, then what happens is... um, the trust clause, the ownership of this building, remains with the United Methodist Church, the liberal progressive wing, and, the, um, and we would lose it. So we have to make a decision at some point or lose the property. That is the uh, one really positive thing about this is some of the previous plans did not, uh, did not allow for us to keep the building, for instance, if we were to depart the UMC. If that was the decision you would lose your building. And so many churches have remained because they don't want to lose their building. But now this particular plan was far more gracious than previous plans in saying that you would keep your building and your apportionments would stop immediately uh, upon your decision. So you would no longer have to pay into the United Methodist Church apportionments and you could leave and you could leave with your building. A very, very simple thing. Other agreements by churches that have left prematurely. There have been churches that have left over the last couple of years. Uh, One just left in early January. Usually the denomination, uh, the agreement with them was that they would pay two years of apportionments and then keep their buildings if they gave them that opportunity. But in this case, there would be no payment of apportionments beyond. Um, So uh, one of the options... 
The traditionalist Methodist church would probably be the one based upon the Wesleyan Covenant Association, which has done a lot of work uh, in terms of uh, uh, creating a new discipline, a stream-down discipline, and uh, a couple of the principles that they have is that there would be uh, much lower apportionments. You wouldn't have the bureaucracy and, and some of the things that cost so much in the United Methodist Church anymore. So their estimate was that apportionments would be uh, one-third of what they currently are. And we pay about $80,000 in apportionments uh, to, to the denomination. Uh, the other thing, which is a big factor, is that they would give local churches more say in selecting pastors. Right now we have a cent system. Uh, the bishop, with the advice of the cabinet, the district superintendents, makes the final decision, and the church has to receive that pastor. But the WCA would, would give much more of the authority for pastoral selection to the local church. There may be other denominations that are formed out of this. The WCA, whatever it might, its new name might be, may not be the only one. Any, any, if, as long as we would join a Methodist denomination, we could retain the, um, the building. If we joined uh, the Presbyterians, we would not. We have to remain within the, pres- within the Methodist world because it is a Methodist trust clause. So that's, I think that's uh, other than to say that we're going to take this step by step as they come along. We're going to trust in God. We're going to pray. And we're going to try to retain, I hope, the solidarity of this congregation, the love for each other, the tolerance, the grace for each other, to remember that all people are welcome into these doors. We welcome them with love. This isn't a division of haters and lovers. It is a, it is a division based upon different approaches to how we love and, uh, and, and, and what that means that we love somebody. Um, as I, as I said, love, love in the Bible is not quite what we think of it is in our culture. And it's, it's, a, it's a little complex. It begins with God, and it depends upon uh, discipline and obedience, even when we might not uh, want that. But that's what we need to do together as a congregation, is to be obedient to God and to love one another and to love the stranger and the guest who comes to us. Uh, sinners, though they be, because... The news is we're all sinners, and we all need each other. So I'm praying and hoping as a pastor we can hold our flock together as much as, much as possible through this. So we're going to have a time for questions uh, here afterwards. I don't want to <clears throat> hold you up anymore if you've got other plans, uh, but uh, I would really invite you to stay if you have some specific questions. I know I, I, I called a pastor the other day up in Harrisonburg and said, I was just wondering about uh, pastors who the church has a vote, but the pastor has a different belief. And so this pastor doesn't want to join the group that they're joining. What happens to that pastor? So this could be rough on some pastors out there. And his answer was, well, local pastors and those who are, for lack of a better term, lower on the totem pole, have not been ordained yet and so forth, may very well not have a church if, if they can't stay with their current church. And so it's, there's going to be some pain involved in this, but there's always pain with birth. And I don't see this as a dying. I see it as a birth. I see it as new seeds being planted and new ways of, of sharing the gospel planted. 
there are probably over a hundred churches in the world that trace their roots to the Wesleyan movement and 40 Methodist denominations in our world today. So this is not something new. This is not something uh, we have been splitting off, uh, you know, for, uh, for many, many decades. So, Okay, I'm not going to ask for questions now. We're going to pray, and then uh, uh, we'll dismiss you if you want to remain. Uh, and, and, and then at that time, not so much me talking, but I'll have Mike and myself can answer uh, uh, questions that you might have to our best of our ability. So I'm going to ask you to stand. Um, Holy Father, we come before you this morning as a people of faith here in Verona. That's what we have done for over 140 years. We will continue to do to trust and to obey you, to follow you, Father. Uh, this church has known other times of, of division and union. But always it has stayed together to be the people of God in this community. We thank you for all those who have walked before us and pray that we would walk in their steps as they walk in the steps of your son, Jesus Christ. Bless us all as we go this day in Jesus' name. Amen.